We are in our message series on the life of Jesus, studying the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man, performing miracles, but most importantly, teaching about who he is and what life is all about. The life of Jesus is documented in four books in the Bible, in the part of the Bible called the New Testament. And these four books, these biographies of Jesus, are collectively referred to as the Gospels. And today we're gonna be in chapter 15 of the Gospel of John. We know it's the night that Jesus will be arrested. It is the day before Jesus will be crucified and die on the cross for you and for me to receive the punishment for our sin that we should have received. He's finished sharing his famous last meal with his disciples, the last supper, and they're now walking together from the home where they shared the last supper across the Kidron Valley, past the temple, onto the other side of Jerusalem toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And during their meal and their walk, Jesus is sharing with them some of his most important teachings. This is his final time with them before his death on the cross, so he's talking about big things. Last time we were in this series, we studied the command Jesus gave his disciples to love one another. And we talked about how Jesus wanted love between Christians to be the defining characteristic of his church. This week, Jesus is going to address a topic that becomes more and more timely to Christianity and the church in the age in which we live. It's the issue of how Christians, you and I, are perceived by the world around us. What does it say about our faith if non-believers around us like us? What does it say about our faith if they don't like us? What if they hate us? Does it mean we're doing something wrong? Does it mean we're doing something right? Within Christianity, there's a lot of talk going on today around these questions. I'm sure you've seen posts on social media, perhaps you've talked to people who call themselves Christians and read articles talking about how we the church must be doing something wrong if the world perceives us as unaccepting or unloving. And it's not unusual for the church to be accused of being bigoted or narrow-minded today. And it's not unusual to find Christians freaking out over this accusation and claiming that, well, everyone is supposed to like us because everyone loved Jesus and he was so wonderful and he ate with prostitutes and nobody ever felt judged by Jesus. So what are we doing wrong as the church that the world doesn't like us? I'm sure you've heard this kind of talk before and we're gonna jump into that messy subject in today's study. And let me be clear. We're talking about how the world around us responds to the Christian message of the Bible. We're talking about how the world around us responds to the gospel that Jesus put in his word. We're not talking about Christians who are jerks and think people don't like them because they're Christians. No, people don't like them because they're jerks. We're not talking about Christians who use their cell phone or speed while driving, then get a ticket and are convinced they're being persecuted because they're a Christian. No, it's because you broke the law and somebody who could do something about it was watching. We're not talking about Christians who aren't friendly, don't invest in other people, don't initiate social reactions, and then think they have no friends because they love Jesus. That's not the reason. We're not talking about the troubles we have in life that we bring upon ourselves. We don't get to blame Jesus for that. 
Today we're talking about how the world around us responds to the gospel and the message of Christianity. Are you with me? Okay. So as we jump into John 15, 18, I just want to put in your mind the juxtaposition to what Jesus has just talked about, what we studied in our last message in this series. Just a few breaths ago, literally, Jesus talked to the disciples about loving one another. Now you would think that as far as agendas for a movement go, that's a pretty safe one. I mean, one would think that everybody would agree with the goal of loving one another and you surely can't get into too much trouble when your organization is trying to love one another. Jesus hasn't told his followers to seek political power, to hoard wealth, to seek governmental influence, to bring about societal overhaul, or to aspire to have authority over people. He hasn't told them to do any of those things. So far, all he's told them to do is abide in relationship with him and love one another. So with that in mind, notice how strange it is what Jesus tells his disciples next. Notice how strange it must have seemed when Jesus said, and if you love one another, this is how the world will respond to you. We're gonna read all the way through a chunk of scripture. We'll read verses 18 to 25, and then we'll break it down and go through it verse by verse. So, disciples, if you love one another, if you're loving people, here's how you can expect the world to respond. Verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that, and then underline, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because, underline, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, for this reason, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without cause. It's pretty heavy, right? Jesus says, guys, most of the time, people aren't going to say how wonderful the loving message of Christianity is. Most of the time, they're going to hate you. And if you're reading this chapter for the first time, that's not where you expected Jesus to take the conversation next. So let's read back through it verse by verse and really seek to understand what Jesus is telling his disciples and us. Verse 18 again. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus says if, which means that the world won't always hate Christians, but as you read that whole section as we just did, it becomes very clear that those times will be in short supply, and indeed that's proven to be the case across history. The church was born into persecution in 32 AD, and the church was plunged immediately into a reign of 10 consecutive Caesars in the Roman Empire who hated Christianity and sought to extinguish it completely from the Roman Empire. 
Christians were killed, imprisoned, beaten, and tortured in ways that I don't need to get into, but were quite simply horrific. And the persecution continued across centuries and countries across the earth to the present day. Today in places like Canada and America and other first world countries, we Christians are increasingly alarmed by the way our governments are beginning to infringe upon our religious rights and freedoms and we're puzzled why our countries and governments seem to be becoming increasingly hostile toward the church. And we think to ourselves, what's going on? This is so strange. And we forget that the world hating the church is not strange. The last couple of hundred years in places like Canada and America is what has been strange. We have been living in an exceptional time, in an exceptional place when it comes to freedom and protection of the church. But the church was born into persecution and the church has spent 99.9% of her time existing across the earth in a state of persecution. That's what's normal. This, this is not normal. And so Jesus' first encouragement to his church when she's facing persecution is simply this. Remember that the world hated me long before it hated you. The point of the message is not primarily Jesus saying, so I know what you're going through. That's not actually the point. The point of Jesus saying this is him saying, don't forget the world hated me. I'm the son of God. I walked the earth without sin. I was never unkind to anyone ever. I only did what was best for everyone I interacted with. I was never cruel. I was never selfish. I only ever put everyone ahead of myself. So don't be surprised that the world hates you even though you think of yourself as a loving Christian. You can be perfectly loving, literally perfectly loving to everyone you meet ever and the world may still hate you. Jesus says, I'm the proof of that. So make a note of this. We shouldn't expect the world that hated Jesus to love us. We shouldn't expect the world that hated Jesus to love us. Yeah, I know you don't like Jesus, but have you met me? <laughs> I'm pretty great. So, so, a couple of observations. Number one, this is what we can take away from this. The reason people hated Jesus, the reason people hate the church, cannot be primarily because we're not loving enough. That can't be the reason. We submitted a candidate who loved the world perfectly, and the world still hated him. The reason has to be something else, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Jesus was perfect, loved everyone perfectly, and the world still hated him. Secondly, this proves what nonsense it is when people say the church should be more loving and accepting. The church should be more like Jesus. I mean, everybody loved Jesus. Everybody loved being around Jesus. Not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, the world hated him. And that statement would seem to be backed up by the fact that the world violently tortured and murdered him. So I think Jesus is on the right track when he says the world hated him. So no, 
Everybody did not love Jesus. Everybody did not love being around Jesus. Everybody did not feel accepted by Jesus. And have you ever prayed, I just want the world to see Jesus in me. According to Jesus, if they do see him in us, a lot of the time that will result in the world hating us. Now that doesn't mean we become pariahs and feel sorry for ourselves all the time. It means that when we do our best to love people, when we do our best to represent Jesus to them, and they seem to hate us in response, we should remember how the world responded to Jesus. Oh right, they hated him first. If the church was more like Jesus, the world would love the church, some say. Well, check out verse 19 because Jesus says, guys, here's how you can get the world to like you. Here's how you can get the world to love you. Here's the formula straight from the mouth of Jesus. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Do you ever feel like you don't fit in in the world? Do you ever feel like you don't quite fit in at the office party? When your classmates get together for a party, when the neighborhood gathers together for an event? It's because you don't fit in. And Jesus tells us, if you belong to the world instead of me, well, you'd fit right in. The world is currently being ruled by Satan. And so everyone who doesn't belong to Jesus belongs to Satan. And I can't stress this enough. Those are the only two teams, the only two sides at play in the world. There's no neutral team. Team Jesus, team Satan. That's it. If you're not on team Jesus, guess which team you're on. You're on team Satan. So we should not be surprised <laughs> We should not scratch our heads and think, why do I, a son or daughter of God, not seem to fit in with Team Satan? The answer is kind of obvious. And if you think I'm overstating that or oversimplifying it, remember what James 4.4 tells us. I put it on your outlines. It says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity just means hostility with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So you read that verse and you're like, Jeff, you were actually being pretty subtle. That's even more blunt. The Bible makes it very clear that you cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. And therefore anyone who wants to love Jesus and love the world is trying to do something the Bible says is impossible. To all those so-called Christian voices out there who are saying things like, we gotta figure out how to make everybody like the church. We gotta figure out how to make everybody view the church as accepting and loving. To all those voices, Jesus says, oh I can tell you how to do that. Just leave my team and join theirs. If you do that, I guarantee you'll get along. Just make the church look like the world. Just create church services that look nothing like church services but look like what's going on in the world and then the world will feel comfortable and they'll like you. Just get rid of all the values and teachings from the word that are in the church that aren't shared by the world. Then they'll like you. That's all you have to do. 
How do you get the world that belongs to Satan to like you? You just join their team. But if you're unwilling to do that, Jesus himself says they're going to hate you most of the time. And we cannot be so arrogant as to say, well, well, maybe there's an angle you haven't thought of, God. I mean, I know you gave it a good go while you were here on the earth, Jesus, but 2,000 years have passed and, and we've become more nuanced in our approach to reaching the lost. So I think I can do it. We have to make a choice over who owns us and where our allegiance lies, in heaven or on earth. If we belonged to the world, we'd feel at home in the world. But we don't because our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. In heaven. I may not fit in on this earth, but I'm going to fit right in in heaven one day. And I'll gladly put up with feeling out of place down here for a short amount of time so that I can feel right at home in the presence of God. Make a note of this. The world loves its own but believers belong to Jesus. The world loves its own, but believers belong to Jesus. That's why we don't fit in. Then Jesus says, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, so this is the reason why the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus is saying, if you believe that the world should love you and that something is wrong if everybody doesn't love you, if you believe you can share the gospel in a way that everyone will receive as good news, if you believe that the Bible is being taught wrong if it offends someone, you're claiming to be greater than me. Because the gospel Jesus preached, the life Jesus lived, the scriptures Jesus lived by got him tortured and killed. And it's blasphemy for us to think we can do a better job with the faith than our Savior Jesus did. A servant is not greater than his master. And by the way, when we do that, we're also claiming we can do a better job than the disciples and all the fathers of the early church did as well. Because most of them were killed for their faith too. Jesus was also being literal with his disciples. In other words, he was talking about a specific group of people in addition to speaking broadly. Jesus was saying the same religious institutions and leaders that hated me, that are trying to kill me, are going to hate you guys too. And they're going to try and kill you too. Then Jesus says, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He's just saying, likewise, the people who responded to the gospel I preached and welcomed me will also respond to your ministries and will also welcome you. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. So guys, when these things go down, don't take it personally. It's not about you. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't search yourself as though the answer lies in you. Remember that this doesn't even have anything to do with you. It's because of me and it's because you've aligned yourself with me. So why does the world hate Jesus and his followers? Jesus says, because they do not know him who sent me. They do not know him who sent me. They don't know the Father. They're lost. They're blind. They can't see clearly spiritually. Verse 23, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father also. 
If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. When Jesus refers to no sin, he's referring to the single specific sin that condemns a person to eternal separation from God. We know this. Jesus taught this when he was on the earth. The reason a person goes to hell is not because they have a long list of sins. It's because they commit the one sin that is unforgivable. The sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit as he tries to draw you to Jesus. If you reject the Holy Spirit, it's called blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And that is the one sin which is unforgivable according to Jesus. Those who hated Jesus had rejected him in the flesh right before their eyes. They had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They were condemned. I want us to understand something very clearly. Take a look at verse 23 again. Make sure you've got this underlined. Jesus says, he who hates me hates my father also. And again, in the world today, I know I'm using this phrase a lot today, there are many so-called Christian authors, pastors, Bloggers, thinkers who believe that there should be greater unity between the church and other faiths, between Jews, Muslims, etc. And they rest that idea on their belief that at the end of all of those belief systems is the same God the Father. They rest that idea on the belief that the God, the Father that we worship is the same Allah of Islam, is the same Yahweh of Judaism and other religions. And so essentially they argue, well, we're ultimately all worshiping the same God. But the problem with that view is what Jesus says right here. He who hates me hates my Father also. If they reject Jesus, if they don't love Jesus, if they don't acknowledge Jesus as being Lord, then they hate the Father too. That's what Jesus is saying. And you need to know, I'm about as pro-Israel as a pastor gets, if you haven't figured that out yet. I believe in praying for Israel. I believe in standing with Israel politically. I believe in financially supporting Israel. And I believe God has a plan to redeem Israel at the end of the great tribulation. But I'm not on board with the idea that the Jews and Jesus worship the same God. We don't. It's not true that we worship the same Father but disagree over Jesus because Jesus said, he who hates me hates my Father also. Hates my Father also. The Jews who are alive on the earth today and do not receive Jesus are not worshiping God the Father and just missing Jesus. Jesus would say, they hate me and they hate my Father. And whoever they think they're worshiping, it's not my father. Jesus and his word don't leave any room, anywhere, ever for the idea that you can reject Jesus but love God the Father. And we just need to be real clear about that and make sure that our kids understand that reality. Make a note of this. To reject Jesus as Lord and Savior is to reject God the Father as well without exception. Without exception. The Jews are not half lost. They're lost until God redeems them. And if you read what the Bible says, they are redeemed when they accept Jesus. And that day is coming, praise God. But they are not half saved, half lost right now. They are completely lost right now. 
Verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is referring to two places in the Psalms, 35.19 and 69.4, where David used the phrase, who hate me without cause. And the logic that Jesus is pointing to is this. He's saying, if the enemies of God hated David, who was just a man, simply because he loved God, How much more will the enemies of God hate the living, breathing Son of God who came to the earth to confront sin once and for all? That's the idea. Why did people hate Jesus? Why do people hate the church and Christianity? Well, right after the good news of John 3.16, just a few verses later, John the Apostle tells us this in verses 19 and 20 of the same chapter. I put it on your outlines. This is powerful. John says, and this is the condemnation that the light, Jesus, has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So Jesus came to free us from, to save us from our sin. So why doesn't everybody welcome him? Because many people do not want to be freed from their sin because they love their sin. Because we belong to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus, our mere presence makes those who belong to the kingdom of darkness uncomfortable. And that discomfort either makes them say, wow, I I can be brought into the light? I can be freed from this darkness? Tell me more. Or it makes people say, get that light out of here. I'm trying to enjoy my darkness. That's why some people died for Jesus and others murdered Jesus. And that's why some people are drawn to Jesus while others hate Jesus in us. Make a note of this, the world hates the church because the darkness hates the light. The world hates the church because the darkness hates the light. And I hope you're picking up, what I really want us to understand is that we give ourselves too much credit We put ourselves far too much at the center of things when we take the approach of the world should love the church more. How should we change our approach? Jesus is telling us and his disciples, it's got nothing to do with you. This is about light and dark. This is about the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Satan. And we give ourselves far too much credit when we act as though a simple change in our approach would change everything and make the world love us. Jesus says there are much bigger forces at play and you need to know that. So on this subject, I wanna say this before we move on in our study. The reality that the world hated Jesus so much that it tortured and murdered him, really get this, did not stop Jesus from loving them. The hatred of the world didn't stop Jesus from dying for the world. And it didn't stop Jesus from sending his church out to that same world with the message of the gospel. So when we encounter this inexplicable hatred from the world, we're not to get bitter. We are not to get angry. We are not to throw ourselves a pity party. And we're not to act as though something is horribly wrong and go, 
man, I'm doing my best to serve Jesus. Why am I encountering all these difficulties? The answer may very well be, because you're serving Jesus. This is how it works. And even here in in, in the Canadian church, even though we're not a a far-out prosperity gospel sort of country most of the time, we still buy into this idea that if we're serving Jesus the right way, then life should be smooth sailing. We shouldn't encounter hostility if we're representing Jesus the right way. And Jesus has just taught something that is completely to the contrary of that type of thinking. We're to remember that the world hated Jesus first and be thankful that we've been counted worthy to follow in his footsteps. And so when you encounter persecution and difficulty for being a Christian, here's why that should encourage you. Because it means you're actually following Jesus. It means you are actually walking in his footsteps. Now because Jesus has just shared such a feel-good message, the world is going to hate you most of the time, He's now going to reassure his disciples of what he told them earlier, that he is going to send the Holy Spirit to be with them and in them to give them the power to endure the persecutions that are coming. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, underline this, he will testify of me. What a great reminder that is. What if I blow my opportunities to share Jesus with people? What if I don't remember the right verses? What if I haven't memorized a system to walk them through the gospel? What if they ask me a question I can't answer? Do we do our best to be ready to share the gospel? Absolutely. Does the salvation of anyone depend on us? Absolutely not. It is the Holy Spirit that testifies of Jesus. The Holy Spirit that draws people to Jesus, speaks to the spirit of that person, and leads them to salvation. If we can remember that, then much of our fear of speaking to the lost about Jesus is taken care of. We're scared because we believe it all rests on us. What if I can't answer their questions? What if my pitch isn't smooth and articulate? He will testify of me, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit. Write this down. The Holy Spirit, not us, draws people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit, not us, draws people to Jesus. I hope you have some times in your life where you realize that God spoke through you, but your experience was just feeling like a bumbling idiot. But you could just tell God was doing something. I do that for a living, by the way. So I can tell you that it's true. Verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. The conversation just continues straight into chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. I didn't share this with you guys to make you scared. I shared it with you so you wouldn't think something has gone wrong when the world hates you. Because can you imagine the, the chaos and the compromise the church would get caught in if the church ever began to think that the world was supposed to love us and love the message that we share. Jesus says, I'm telling you up front, the world's gonna hate you. There's gonna be persecution. Don't freak out when it happens. Just remember they hated me first. 
Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. That means excommunication. And remember that for, for many who became Christians, the first wave, most of them were Jews. And for them, they understood that Christianity was simply the continuation of Judaism. They understood that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in Torah throughout the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament. So for them, they were just Jewish and they were continuing to receive Jesus as their Messiah and this was just the next step of their Judaism. Also remember that the synagogue was not just a place where people showed up on Saturday on the Sabbath for service and went home. It was the center in every town of social Jewish life. Remember that to be Jewish was not just a religion, it was an ethnicity. It was where people got together socially. It was where single people met other single people for the first time. It was where dinner plans were made. It was where business dealings were done. It was where people found employment. To be excommunicated from the synagogue was to essentially, for a Jew, be excommunicated from your ethnicity, if you can even comprehend of that. So imagine being part of what had been for thousands of years the most persecuted people group on the earth and they've become tight because it's usually them against the world and now you're, you're kicked out of that. You're fired from your job. If you live in a Jewish town, no one's going to hire you. If your family hasn't become Christians, they're going to disown you. Your spouse is going to divorce you. You're going to lose everything. That's what it meant to be excommunicated from the synagogue at that time. And Jesus says, guys, that's coming. Then he says, yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. For these disciples, that would be a reference primarily to the same Jews who had Jesus murdered. Because as the church was born, those same Jews would begin to work with the Roman authorities to rat on as many Christians as possible to get as many of them killed as possible. One of the Jews who most violently persecuted the early Christian church would go on to write most of the New Testament. Speaking, of course, of the Apostle Saul. And you can read about how that went down in the book of Acts. But then throughout the centuries, as beginning in the fourth century, the Catholic Church rose to power across the centuries. They would kill countless thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Protestant Christians and they believed they were doing God's work. Verse 3, and these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Now when we encounter people doing wicked things who think they're doing God's work, the explanation is always the same. They haven't actually known Jesus or the Father. This is an important point to know just for defending the faith. Anyone can do anything in the name of anyone. So in other words, I can go and kill a bunch of people and say I'm doing it in the name of Dave. And you could go, well, that's why I don't follow Dave. He's a terrible person who had all these people killed. But that wouldn't be logical. You see, what you would actually need to do is you would need to go and find out if Dave actually told me to do that. Because if he didn't, then it doesn't mean he's a bad guy. It means I'm crazy. So when people do wicked things in the name of Christianity, that's not an evidence against Christianity. It's an invitation to go and find out 
what the one who embodies Christianity, Jesus Christ, actually taught. And if people are doing wicked things and Jesus said to do those wicked things, then there's a problem. But we know he didn't. People who do wicked things in the name of the faith are not doing what Jesus told them to do in his word. Find out for yourself what Jesus said and then you'll be able to discern if people actually know the Father or not. Verse 4, but these things I've told you that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. He's telling his disciples all this at the end of his time with them because while Jesus was with them, he was supernaturally protected from being arrested and murdered. But that time's coming to an end and that protection is about to lift. Verse 5, but now I go away to him who sent me and none of you asks me where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. When you suffer the loss of a believing loved one, or like the disciples, you know it's about to happen. They knew it was going to happen to Jesus. And the sorrow is overwhelming. The solution is always the same. Turn your thoughts and your heart to where they've gone. Heaven and the presence of God. Because if you focus on your temporary loss, you'll be consumed by grief. But if you focus on their eternal gain, you'll be consumed by hope. Every loss is painful, but a focus on what they have gained will ultimately leave you with a hope that's greater than your grief. And so Jesus essentially tells his boys, be happy for me. I'm returning to my Father in heaven. You should be excited about where I'm going more than you are sad about the fact that I'm leaving you. That's what he's telling them. But then he says, verse seven, nevertheless, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. So what I'm about to tell you is gonna sound hard to believe at first, but you can take this to the bank. It is to your advantage that I go away. Underline that. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. This is an incredible statement from Jesus. He's telling his boys, it is better for you that I leave and return to heaven than that I stay here in my earthly body. It's better for you. Now, How in the world could that possibly be the case? What could be better than Jesus being on the earth? And then Jesus tells them, because if I return to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. When Jesus was on the earth in a human body, he had locality. That means that like us, he could only be in one place at one time. So as the disciples went out across the world with the gospel, Jesus could only be with one of them at any given time. Jesus could preach the gospel to you and share it with you, but then he'd have to leave. No Holy Spirit for you. But the Holy Spirit is omnipresent because he's spirit. He can be everywhere at the same time. He could be with the disciples in Asia, with them in prison in Rome, with them facing persecution in Jerusalem. He could be with the new convert and the seasoned saint. The Holy Spirit could actually make a home in the spirit of every believer, meaning God's presence, the presence of Jesus, could be in and with every believer all the time. That's better. <laughs> that's better. Praise God, that's better. Can you imagine if Jesus was still on the earth in Jerusalem in a human body and you'd have to take a number to see him? You would be thrilled to have 10 seconds with him 
in your entire life, and that's probably all you would get. We have the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit available to us 24-7. That's better. Verse 8, and when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, that would happen in about 40 days' time from this moment, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's walk through this now. The word convict also means convince. So the Holy Spirit will convict and convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What? What? Well, let's walk through it. Jesus goes on to explain each of those three terms, and he gives us a because, a reason for each of them. Starting in verse 9, the Holy Spirit will convince the world of sin because, quote, they do not believe in me. This is, again, referring to that singular specific sin that condemns a person to hell, the sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit's attempt to draw you to Jesus. The only reason the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin is because we don't believe in Jesus. Holy Spirit isn't out there interested in making people who don't believe in Jesus feel bad for smoking. That's not what the Holy Spirit is doing on the earth. He's not like, I gotta handle all these drunk people. For anyone who doesn't know God, the Holy Spirit is interested in convicting them of one sin, the sin of not believing in Jesus. That's it. That's why as the church, we should have the same approach. Doesn't really matter what sins a person is into if they don't believe in Jesus. Otherwise, we're just cleaning them up before they go to hell forever. So both us and the Holy Spirit should be concerned and are concerned with only one sin for those who don't know Jesus, the sin of not believing in him. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it's on your outline, says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The only way we can get saved is to understand that we need a Savior and then receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And it's the Holy Spirit that brings us, that leads us to Christ. He convicts us and he convinces us of our sin, that we are sinners so that we will believe. So write this down. Firstly, the Holy Spirit convicts us of being sinners who need a Savior. And we need him to do that. Then in verse 10, Jesus goes on to say that the Holy Spirit convinces us of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So the Holy Spirit convinces us, makes us able to believe the good news that Jesus has made us righteous, right before God the Father, without sin from his perspective. None of us can be righteous on our own. We've all sinned and we mentioned last time that our attempts to be good on our own are like filthy rags to God. But Jesus came, took all our sins, died for them on the cross, receiving the punishment we should have received for our sins, and then he gave us his perfect righteousness, his sinlessness. And that enabled us to have a restored relationship with the Father because our sin no longer separates us from him because it's been dealt with by Jesus. So write this down, the Holy Spirit convinces us that Jesus can make us righteous. If we were left just being convicted of our sin, that would be a hopeless situation to be in. But it's the first step. We need to know that we're sinners who need saving. The second step is the Holy Spirit enabling us to believe and understand that 
God, through Jesus, can make us righteous, can solve that sin issue. Thirdly, in verse 11, Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit will convince us of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That's referring to Satan. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan was judged, and the end result of the world was set in stone. Nothing can change how the world is going to end. Let me tell you how it ends. Satan loses, Jesus wins, which means we win. That's how it's going to go down. We know that from many verses, but one example is John 12, 31, which is on your outline. Right before Jesus goes to the cross, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler, ruler of this world will be cast out. So write this down. The Holy Spirit convinces us that Jesus has defeated Satan and sin. He's defeated Satan and sin. That's the work the Holy Spirit does on the earth. And that's important to remember. Like we talked about, it's the Holy Spirit that leads people to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that gives people the gift of faith so they can believe. And it's the Holy Spirit that keeps people assured of their faith and their salvation. He will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I used to think the Holy Spirit comes to tell me that I'm a bad person, that I'm not living right, that God's gonna get me. The truth is that the Holy Spirit comes in incredible kindness to convince me of the truth that I need a savior and that when I turn to Jesus, he will make me righteous in the eyes of the Father and that Satan no longer has power over me. Those are the truths the Holy Spirit wants to convince each person of. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. That's Jesus basically saying, there's more to learn, guys, but I think we've covered enough for today, <laughs> and that's probably true. Verse 13, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Jesus is telling his disciples that the Holy Spirit will reveal more things to them when he comes. And he would. Specifically, he would inspire several of these disciples to write the books that would make up the New Testament in our Bibles. But Jesus is also giving his followers and you and I the assurance and, and the wonderful promise that the Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us in every situation in life, assuming we allow him to. This is the answer to our fears of what if I get in a situation where I don't know what to do or what if this happens or I find myself in that situation. Jesus says relax. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. That's a promise worth memorizing. When you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do, you can claim that promise and know that you're praying the will of God so he will answer you with yes. You can pray, God, you promised me the Holy Spirit would guide me into all truth. Father, I desire to do your will in this situation, so guide me in the truth. And then wait on the Lord to do just that, and he will, he will. God's word is the source of truth in our lives. So if you ever read a verse or a section of scripture that you don't understand, that you just can't wrap your head around, I want to encourage you to write that down somewhere. Write it in, in some sort of journal and, and be as candid and honest as you can be. You can just be like, this seems bonkers to me or I don't get this at all. Write it and then just pray. Make it part of your daily prayers. Jesus, I'm just asking because you promised 
that your spirit would lead me into all truth, that you will give me revelation and understanding to your word. And keep that journal. Date when you couldn't understand it and watch over the years. You'll be amazed as it will just come up at church. You'll just hear people talking about it. You'll stumble on a Facebook post because the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Make a note of this. Jesus promises believers that the Holy Spirit will reveal all the truth we need. The Holy Spirit will reveal all the truth we need. And then I had you underline where Jesus said, I don't think I had you underline it actually. He said of the Holy Spirit, he will tell you things to come. I thought that was neat because Jesus is telling his disciples the Holy Spirit's gonna speak to them about things regarding the future. Prophecies, things to come. And he certainly would. The Apostle John, who was there with Jesus, would receive the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. Peter would write of the end times. And then even in our day, over the last several decades, there's been an explosion in our understanding of biblical prophecy. We're suddenly seeing things happen very literally that biblical scholars thought for centuries were only allegorical. For example, when the book of Revelation talks about an army of 200 million coming out of the east, that was recorded by the Apostle John at a time when there weren't 200 million people on the earth. And yet we know today that's the size of China's military. As the years go by, the Holy Spirit has revealed more and more in God's word as we've needed to know it and as it's become more important to the days that we're living in. Verse 14, this is huge, underline this. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, he will glorify me. He will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Write this down and then we'll unpack it. The Holy Spirit's work is always to bring glory to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's work is always to bring glory to Jesus. If there is a production and the star of the show is on the stage, there will be a stage manager, a showrunner with one of those microphones on on the side and a clipboard and directing everybody. That's who the Holy Spirit is in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit does everything he can to get the attention on to Jesus. Here's why this is important. Hope I don't offend anybody here. It's never stopped me before, but I still, I hope I don't. In the church, you know, you know, we have a lot of different expressions of the faith. Church is a big family. We've got a lot of uncles, a lot of aunts, a lot of cousins. Some cousins we've tried to get out the family, but we can't seem to get rid of. Church is a big, big family, and, and I was raised Pentecostal. Very, very Pentecostal. And I was part of a movement where there would be these different moves of God around the world. God's moving in Toronto, they would say. God's moving in Pensacola, Florida. And the obsession of these moves of God, these revivals, would always be on the Holy Spirit. And everything was about the Spirit. Getting in the Spirit. Getting drunk in the Spirit being overwhelmed by the Spirit, seeking the Spirit, asking for a touch from the Spirit. But in verse 13, Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit won't talk about himself. And in verse 14, he tells us that the Holy Spirit will seek to glorify him, Jesus. 
And all I'm going to say is this. In other words, when there's a genuine move of God on the earth, when there's a real revival, the result will be an increased focus on Jesus. It will be glory being given to Jesus, attention being directed to Jesus, because that's what the Holy Spirit does, according to Jesus. A true revival, a true movement of God will be a Jesus movement. And will the Holy Spirit be moving? Absolutely. But he'll be moving by pointing people to Jesus. And so when God really moves on the earth, the name you hear over and over again won't be the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It'll be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. In conclusion, things are going to get more difficult for Christians in the world, including here in Canada, but, but that's normal. We shouldn't be surprised. What we need to do is make sure that we have each decided to be a friend of Jesus rather than a friend of the world because we can't be both, can't have it both ways. Persecution's good for the church. It's good for us. When our faith brings difficulties into our lives, it has a way of making our priorities real clear and things actually get less complicated because we're reminded that we love Jesus more than anything else. You know, in China, where police could interrupt the church service at any time and drag people off to jail while beating them, you know what the pastor never preaches on? Commitment. Ever. He never preaches on commitment because if you're there, you're committed. <laughs> Persecution makes the gospel spread more because nothing spreads the gospel more effectively than when the church is made up only of people who are completely committed to Jesus and ready to die for him. So don't fear persecution. Don't fear for the future of Christianity in Canada or anywhere else. And when persecution happens, remember it happened to Jesus first. And he's worth it. He is worth it. And don't forget the incredible gift we have in the helper, the comforter, the, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. Ask him for help when you need guidance. Allow him to strengthen you and point you to Jesus. Allow him to refresh you and fill you up again. Even today as we worship in this coming time. Don't neglect the power of the Holy Spirit that's available to us. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and, and close your eyes and... Jesus, we just want to thank you for your honesty and your transparency. You have been so forthright with us about the true nature of reality. That when we are saved by you and we come into your family, we are immediately at odds with a world that is currently ruled by Satan. But Jesus, it's a world that you died for. It is a world that you have asked us to share you with. And so Jesus, we pray that we would love the world in the sense that we would want the world to belong to you, but not in the sense that our affections are directed toward the world. May those be completely for and on you. But Jesus, help us to just once again let go of any need to be loved by the world. It's our confession that, that your love is enough. And you can meet that need completely. 
So Jesus, help us to not be surprised. Help us not to be bitter. Help us not to think something is wrong when we encounter hostility because we love you. Help us to count it a privilege to experience even the smallest part of what you did when you came to the earth and loved the earth perfectly. Jesus, help us to be strong in the faith. Help us to be unwavering without hesitation in those moments when we have to choose between loving the world or loving you. Let it be no choice at all. Let the choice be made now long before those moments come. That we've chosen you as you have chosen us. And there's nothing we love more than you. Nothing, Jesus. We're going to have communion available in the back. And I encourage you to take that today and, and just be reminded of what Jesus has done for you in, in giving his body and his blood for you. And maybe take a minute to just soak in the truth that nobody and nothing in the world will ever love you the way Jesus has. Nothing and nobody. And Jesus has loved you perfectly. So if there's an area where you've been feeling insecure or directing too much affection toward being loved by the world, just, just repent and ask Jesus to forgive you of that. Ask Jesus to fill you again with his spirit that you might live for him and bring glory to him. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.